0: Hi, this is Shannon Lee. And whether you like history or not, if you care about bravery, wisdom, passion, larger-than-life characters, and some of the most emotionally intense moments in human experience, like I do, you have come to the right place. Daniele Bellelli is a university history professor, writer, martial artist, and a friend of mine. And he will be your guide in a journey to the place where history and epic collide. Please enjoy this episode of History on Fire, all about my father, Bruce Lee. Let's go say History on Fire. This is the second and final part of my series on Bruce Lee. If you haven't checked out part one yet, I strongly suggest you do. But if you have, let's roll, because we are about to touch on a part of the story that I'm extremely passionate about. In the previous episode, I mentioned how Bruce Lee's philosophy was at least as important, if not more important, than his athletic abilities. And throughout our story so far, I have hinted At his philosophical clashes with traditional martial arts, but this is probably an opportune time to dive a little deeper into this, so I'm gonna take a break from the chronological narration of his life and ready to take a deep dive into his philosophy. Deep being the correct word here because his clash with the world of traditional martial arts ran extremely deep. To start with, Lee rejected many of the formalities characterizing most martial art schools, such as the constant bowing, the use of a bell system, special uniforms, the ever present hierarchy, the almost religious subservience to the instructor, and most other ritualistic aspects that are typical of the martial art world. He also harshly criticized many of the training methodologies feeling that they failed to properly prepare a student for the reality of combat you know, sparring with limited rules was the number one tool that Bruce Lee advocated uh, anything short of that in his mind was delusional or rather, I mean, sure, you can drill, you can learn techniques you can, that's a given, you know, you need that stuff but ultimately, without the sparring element he, was, uh, he referred to it as uh, swimming on dry land you know, learning how to swim on dry land, which basically saying, you know, you can't really learn how to fight if you don't fight. And this is in some ways is the same reason why Jigoro Kano's Judo had done so well when compared to the more technically complete schools of Jiu-Jitsu. Because Kano had emphasized the idea of randori, of live play, of sparring, of, you know, it's great that you know 10,000 techniques, but what does it matter if you can't apply them when the pressure is on and the adrenaline is flowing? And the only way you get good at this is by training. You know, of course, the martial art, you know, any martial art methodology is always limited because there's always the danger of uh, when you spar of getting hurt because you're being, quote-unquote, too realistic so it's a fine line between keeping your brain cells and at the same time training in a realistic format but Lee was definitely pushing toward realism so all of the above was controversial but Lee went much much further than this his criticism addressed something that hardly anyone dared to touch and definitely something hardly anyone thought of questioning which was the very concept of separate martial art styles with separate sets of rules and separate teaching methodologies. Now, anyone who has spent more than two minutes training in any martial art has run into the inevitable debates about the strengths and weaknesses of each style. You know, In a way, this discussion Really remind me of the arguments that you hear between different stripes of religious fundamentalists. You know, typically, just like fundamentalists argue that all other religions are false and evil, while theirs is the only one true, you know, the only true one. This concept that their way is the way and all others are false and evil. Practitioners of various styles of martial arts essentially did the same thing. They would argue that theirs was the strongest and greatest fighting system out there while everyone else was deluded. Kind of remind me of the national anthem in Borat when Borat sing Kazakhstan greatest country in the world all other countries are run by little girls. That's sort of what those arguments sound like. And this is really not what Lee was doing. He wasn't proposing a different style, arguing that his JKD would be best. That's what everyone else did. What he was doing was arguing that the very concept of martial art styles was misguided. And in regards to why that is, I'll let the man speak for himself for a minute. Here are a few quotes from his own writings. He said, It is conceivable that a long time ago During his lifetime, the man resisted the temptation to organize this partial truth, although this is a common tendency in man's search for security and certainty in life. After his death, his students took his hypothesis, his postulates, his inclination, and his method, and turned them into law. Impressive creeds were then invented, solemn reinforcing ceremonies prescribed, rigid philosophy and patterns formulated and so on until finally an institution was erected so what originated as one man's intuition of some sort of personal fluidity was transformed into solidified fixed knowledge complete with organized classified responses presented in a logical order in so doing the well-meaning loyal followers not only made this knowledge a holy shrine, but also a tomb, in which they buried the founder's wisdom. In another quote from the same article that Bruce Lee had written for Black Belt magazine, he added: Unfortunately, most students in the martial arts are conformists. Instead of learning to depend on themselves for expression, they blindly follow their instructors, no longer feeling alone, and finding security in mass imitation. The product of this imitation is a dependent mind. Independent inquiry, which is essential to genuine understanding, is sacrificed. Look around the martial arts and witness the assortment of routine performers, trick artists, desensitized robots, glorifiers of the past, and so on, all followers or exponents of organized despair. Wow, he really didn't pull any punches, did he? He goes pretty hard in this article. Now in saying this, Lee was saying that any style, by following a rigid methodology, limits the range of our options. All styles according to Lee had strengths and weaknesses, some blind spots that they didn't consider or techniques or strategies they were missing. So if someone is bound to a particular style, they'll never be able to overcome its particular weaknesses because they never have a chance to approach reality which in this case, you know, we're talking about the reality of combat they can't approach reality through a different set of lenses and that becomes the problem so in criticizing the martial artist's blind devotion to their style of choice Bruce Lee was making a much larger point than simply offering a new perspective on martial art He was addressing the dangers of addiction to ideologies, which is a theme that I don't think he gets any more important than this in any episode I ever cover. This is one of those themes that pops up once in a while and I find absolutely central to the human experience. Addiction to ideologies is the concept there. Now, in case this may not be self-evident, let me break this down a little. What exactly does it mean, addiction to ideologies, and how does it work? The universe is a scary place. I don't think there's much argument on this. So there's a need, you know, most human beings have a deep-seated need for the safety of some kind of ideology that explains everything, that give you the safety of an identity, the safety of a dogma. And I get it. I certainly don't judge it. It seems, you know, life can be truly scary. We don't know whether there's a life after that. We see loved ones die at a drop of a dime without us being able to do anything about it. So I very much get it. There's a reason why cult leaders and dictators are popular most people, whether they want to admit it or not, most people tend to crave some sort of daddy figure telling, here are the 12 rules of life or 15 principles of existence or the twenty se-, you know, something. Here are our beliefs. You never have to be in doubt again. Follow our methodology and all will be okay. And it's obvious why people fall for it. It's an extremely appealing message. You know, rather than having to make choices and stumble at every step of the way and live with the responsibility for all your mistakes, constantly having to second-guess yourself, you can just buy some nice pre-packaged ideology that gives you all the answers. Someone figured it all out for you already. You just need to follow. And once you join the club, they'll give you a flag, a set of symbols, some slogans, and all these things will help you escape the fear of being alone to face life's tragedies on your own filled with insecurities and with no one to turn to instead the ideology you buy will hand-deliver the answers to any questions you may have who doesn't like that? unfortunately the price to pay is your individuality ideologies and styles if you want to apply this to martial arts keel independent inquiry since truth is never found within the confines of a single school life is always more complicated than any methodology than any ideology than any of these things can possibly capture the first book I ever wrote was entitled On the Warrior's Path in it I dedicated a lengthy chapter to Bruce Lee's philosophy I'll read you something from it because it fits here. There are plenty of reference to that book in this section describing Bruce Lee's philosophy, so I won't bother interrupting saying it's a quote every time, you know. Keep in mind there are quite a few from here. By questioning the loyalty of martial artists to their own particular schools of fighting, Lee was doing more than suggesting a methodological change. He was grappling with one of the most powerful forces in human history and that is people's sense of identity. It was as if you had questioned people's loyalty to their own country or to their own religion. One simply does not question such things. Doing so would be unpatriotic and blasphemous. Normally, group identity is reinforced through passionate adherence to a common set of beliefs and through consensus among members. Questioning the core beliefs on which a group is based and whether the group is a religious sect, a political organization, a street gang, or a martial art style doesn't really make a difference. Well, questioning those things is at best a dangerous threat to the common sense of identity and at worst an act of insubordination and betrayal. Lee went even further than that. He didn't simply criticize the core beliefs of one particular group. Rather, he questioned the very idea of adhering to any particular group. According to Lee, the simple act of joining a group structured around a codified set of rules and beliefs ends up creating a we-against-them mentality, causing endless divisions and useless conflicts with those who rally under a different flag. If we stop to test Lee's hypothesis against the backdrop of human history, the results are frightening. Racism, mass enslavement of people with a different skin color, witch hunts, inquisitions, political persecutions of ideological dissidents, gang wars, holy wars justified in the name of religious differences, wars rooted in ethnic pride, wars fought by combatants who do not understand the causes of the conflict but who fight nonetheless in the name of their country. The number of massacres and the amount of suffering caused by the human predisposition to fight over perceived differences can hardly be calculated. And the origin of all this bloodshed, very often, is the human need to belong and to be part of a group. The promise of a common dream and a common identity is one of the main reasons for the popularity of churches, street gangs and any other kind of exclusive organizations. Because the thing is, the desire to belong to a group truly is one of the strongest driving forces in the human psyche. People literally kill and give up their lives for it. Inevitably, any ideology, any club, and even any martial art style needs to reinforce its identity by clashing with someone who represents everything they are not those who have chosen a different ideology, a different club, a different style. Why belong to any school of thought, Lee asks, if all that it does is divide us into opposing factions and prevent us from seeing the truth of different points of view? A reassuring sense of identity, seems to be Lee's suggestion, is nothing but a comfortable prison, shielding us from the intensity of unfiltered experience. It shields us from many of the dangers and doubts of life, as well as from the ecstasy and beauty of it all. Through preconceptions and dogmas, most organizations shape the quality of our experiences, force us to watch life through the lenses of an ideological form of tunnel vision, and ultimately end up limiting the range of our choices. Too afraid to bear the weight of choosing on their own, Many people hide behind the security of a group that provides all the answers. According to Lee, however, this is a way to hide, not a way to live. So this assault on old traditions of the martial art world, this attack on the very foundations on which martial art styles rested, outrage people left and right, Asian martial arts were the products of cultures that have been heavily influenced by Confucianism and among the characteristics of Confucianism figure prominently obsequious reference for tradition respect for hierarchy deeply culturally conservative tendencies and hostility toward innovation Bruce Lee's philosophy was pretty much 180 degrees antithetical to all this His sources of inspiration were found among the most radical aspects of Taoism and Zen Buddhism, which are very much at odds with the cultural matrix created by Confucianism. Basketball legend Karim Abdul-Jabbar, who studied with Bruce Lee for quite a while, said, I saw Bruce as a renegade Taoist priest. He was into spirituality, and he was heavily influenced by Taoism. But he also adds, but you couldn't put him in that box. He was beyond that. Meaning, even a wild, unconventional identity like the Taoist one, it was still an identity, and Li was entirely beyond all identities in that regard. Now the fact that Li advocated shaking up dusty traditions in favor of experimenting with new ideas was smoke in the eyes of the traditionalists. You know, Confucianism had influenced Chinese culture and by reflex many other Asian cultures, to a point that the very idea of innovating and creating something new was often viewed negatively. Creating, in fact, almost by definition means you have to break away from tradition, which is the very thing that Confucianism puts on a pedestal. In many ways, you know, the way Confucian philosophy tended to appeal to this golden age of these ancient wise rulers who had figured it all out, uh, what they referred to as the way of the ancestors was the best possible one. And so in departing from tradition, it means they are losing quality. Innovation is a bad thing. Innovation is something that inevitably will make things turn for the worse. So, as paradoxical as it may sound in the West, through Confucian lenses, the act of creating something means that you are losing the wisdom of the past. So, for this reason, you know, this has created a really funny situation in China where it had been customary for Chinese martial artists, but not only, in general, for anybody in China wanting to create something new, they would have to mask it in a more traditional and acceptable garb. You know, a Chinese martial artist starting a new style could not claim that he created it. So what you could do was instead to, if you wanted to have your style and your ideas accepted, you would have to pretend that you're really rediscovering some ancient style. You know, you would connect your style to some famous lineage or... Uh, more likely than not you would make something up because you cannot connect to an existing lineage that say no we have nothing to do with you you would essentially fake some ancient origins you know you could uh, disappear for a few years and later come back and say I was the disciple of this uh, old guy who's the last lineage holder from this ancient tradition that's a thousand years old and You know that would be the way to go about it. Then you say, "Okay, he disappeared off into the sunset. I'm the last holder of this ancient tradition." Here we go. That was the way that you could begin innovation by pretending that you were rediscovering some ancient tradition. Bruce Lee, on the other hand, rejected the importance of lineage. Didn't bother trying to fake having rediscovered a tradition. He claimed credit, and in the process of doing so, just challenged the way things were typically done. You know, rather than revering the way of the ancestors and accepting their conclusions as absolute truths, Li encouraged individuals to question everything and find out for themselves. Confucianism was all about obedience and copying the way of the past, Li was all about creativity and freedom. But what exactly does emphasizing creativity and freedom mean? I think it's pretty clear that Bruce Lee was against the dogmatism and obsolete methods that according to him characterize most martial arts but what was he advocating in its place? You know, how was his uh, JKD different from just any other style? Here is a quote from him he said let it be understood once and for all that I have not invented a new style composite or modification on the contrary I hope to free my comrades from bondage to styles, patterns, and doctrines. How often are we told by different senseis or masters that the martial arts are life itself? But how many of them truly understand what they are saying? Life is a constant movement, rhythmic as well as random. Life is constant change, not stagnation. Instead of choicelessly flowing with this process of change, Many of these masters, past and present, have built an illusion of fixed forms, rigidly subscribing to traditional concepts and techniques of the art, solidifying the ever flowing, dissecting the, the totality. So let's break this down. What did this mean in practice? You know, in a way, JKD, more than being a new martial art style in the typical sense, It was more of a philosophical principle applied to martial arts. Following this way of thinking, Lee had argued that no fixed formula could capture the flow of existence. What worked yesterday may not work today. What the old masters discovered was one way to fight, not necessarily the only one or even the best one. Different conditions inevitably call for different approaches. So to Bruce Lee, an endless process of trial and error was much preferable to establishing one day's intuition as an immutable law. He wanted to push his student to become adaptable to any situation. To him that made much more sense than just teaching them a fixed methodology of fighting. Lee wrote Jet Kune Do favors formlessness. So that it can assume all forms, and since Do has no style, it can fit with all styles. As a result, Do utilizes all ways and is bound by none, and likewise uses any techniques or means which serve its end. That sentence, actually, these what two sentences that I just quoted, really contain the core of the JKD approach. You know, Lee's JKD was meant to be kind of like a lab where fighting theories and techniques could be put to the test. Students could experiment with them without being bound to follow any unless they wished to. You know, the words written around the very symbol of JKD stand as the catchy slogan for Lee's methodology. It said, using no way as a way, having no limitation as limitation. So this concept of not being bound to any particular methodology in order to have the freedom to use any methodology is quite revolutionary. You know that's it really points to the limits of any ideology it doesn't even matter which one you know. When you think about it it's you know you find never ending ideological arguments rather than you know different schools of thought arguing with one another about no we are right no you're right and And half of the time they are not even listening to each other, they are not even trying to listen if the other viewpoint maybe has at least a 5% of truth that's worth incorporating. You know, rather than doing what any sensible human being should do, which is take the best from multiple sources in order to deliver the best possible results, they just want to wave the flag and claim that they are team one kind of thing. You can see this in politics, in religion, in martial arts, in pretty much anything. Now, this concept is brilliant if applied to the martial arts, but I really wish it was applied in politics and religion and every aspect of our lives. You know, in parenting, in how you raise your kids, in how you communicate, in your relationships, in. Writing just a few years after Bruce Lee's time, philosopher. Paul K. Feyerabend refer to this approach as epistemological anarchism. Now, I'm not sure if Feyerabend knew of Bruce Lee, I mean, I'm sure he heard of him, but, because who didn't, but I don't know if you really look into his ideas, but he was definitely articulating the exact same approach within the field of philosophy, which in some ways is the perfect cure for the disease of factionalism, for the addiction to ideological thinking, So to me, this mindset should be taught in school. Now, acknowledging that any methodology has strengths as well as weaknesses, this kind of approach uh, essentially allows you to adopt any method showing promise as long as it delivers results. So the way Bruce Lee articulated it, it was in a very open-ended four-step methodology. It went something like this. Step one was research your own experience. Step 2 was absorb what is useful, then reject what is useless, and lastly add what is specifically your own. Which is really what anybody should do about anything really, you know, you look at the evidence, that's the research your own experience part, you see what works and you use it, you see what doesn't work and you figure okay, that needs to be changed, and then you add your own unique insight, or you you know you personalize it. You give it your own personal touch. Boom, simple. Well, simple except hardly anybody does it because that's not the way you build identities. That's not how you the way you build uh, martial arts schools or religions or political philosophies or anything. You know, it, not the, you set up a set of ideas. You start arguing they are the best ever, and nothing else exists. And then you defend them at all costs, even in conditions where they are clearly wrong. That's the way most of humanity operates. And is the exact opposite of what Bruce Lee advocated in here. Now, in one of his most famous quotes, Lee stated, Man, the living, creating individual, is always more important than any established style. So, rather than following the standard curriculum of a fixed style, Lee advocated a form of cross training, the design to pick the best from different martial arts systems. You know, a lot of great innovators in the history of martial arts had done this. You know, they would cross train in several arts and then they would take the best from different systems and they would create a new one. The main difference was that Lee took things one step further. You know, rather than just doing this process himself, but then creating a new style and requiring all his students to follow that to a T, he created a lot of controversy by suggesting that people should just be constantly in a process of evolution, of constantly researching, and never just crystallizing their findings into a finished product. Since the 1990s or so, the competitions like UFC, you know, all kind of, MMA as a sport in general, has convinced a whole lot of martial artists that cross-training is absolutely necessary. But in the late sixties, when Bruce Lee was speaking out about this, the idea of cross-training was not quite as well received. Many people saw it as just blasphemy. So philosophically speaking, let's be clear, it's not like Bruce Lee created anything new with this stuff. you know what he was saying was largely derivative. You know, Most of, uh, as I mentioned earlier, among his main sources of inspiration were Taoism and Zen Buddhism, often filtered through the books of, written by Alan Watts. Uh, if you've never checked him out, Alan Watts was definitely a source of inspiration for Lee. And also the writings of another guy, Jiddu Krishnamurti. Uh, Krishnamurti, who incidentally spent much of his life in Ohio, California, where I currently reside, well, tiny tangent. Krishnamurti had a really bizarre personal story. You know, born in a poor family in southern India in 1895, Krishnamurti was groomed since childhood by members of the Theosophical Society to be some sort of messiah. Now, depending on who you ask, the Theosophical Society was a religious organization or a philosophical group or a cult. Regardless. Krishnamurti grew up worshipped and adored by members of the society who believed that he was the savior they had been waiting for. The messiah gig obviously is not an easy one to give up. The material benefits of basically being handed by your faithful anything you want, the ego stroking that comes from everyone, treating every word that comes out of your mouth as the greatest thing they've ever heard. These are things that people would give everything for. Having those things delivered to you on a golden platter and rejecting them is pretty much unheard of except that that's what exactly what Krishnamurti did. Krishnamurti kissed goodbye to the Theosophical Society's messianic plans for him you know all of their dreams he was like nope I'm not part of it He refused this role as messiah and instead suggested that people become their own saviors. He argued that organized religions were obstacles to true spirituality. Uh, Here is a Krishna Murti quote that Bruce Lee very much liked. He said, I maintain that truth is a pathless land, and you cannot approach it by any religion. A belief is purely an individual matter, and you cannot and must not organize it. If you do, it becomes dead, crystallized. It becomes a creed, a sect, a religion. To be imposed on others. So clearly, Krishnamurti was very big on the, on individuality, more than on sticking to an organization, and clearly you can hear the echo of his words in Bruce Lee's own writing. You know, the philosophy that Krishnamurti preached for the rest of his life would be extremely anti-authoritarian, and advocated for people not to follow gurus or masters but to create their own paths, which is something that strongly resonated with Bruce Lee so much so that he used many of Krishnamurti's ideas and applied them to the martial arts. So Bruce Lee was channeling that same kind of anti-authoritarian spirit and applying it to the extremely hierarchical world of martial arts. He took these ideas some of which are very ancient you know Taoism or Zen Buddhism we're talking about very long time ago but he applied these ideas to the ego-driven world of filmmaking, to the martial arts world, and to his own life. And in the process of doing all this, he really changed quite a bit the Western perception of Asian cultures and pushed many martial artists to explore the philosophical roots of their own practice. Now, even though, yes, it is true that some of the sources of inspirations were quite ancient, Bruce Lee adapted them in new original ways and the way he did this was very much the product of the cultural context in which he lived. The philosophical outlook of JKD, in fact, is the perfect martial art application of the kind of ideas that were becoming popular in the 1960s. Try imagining how Bruce Lee's philosophy would be received in 1950 Middle America. It's safe to say that his questioning of patriotism, a theme that we'll chat about later, his anti organized religion stance, his anti authoritarian ideas, his attacks against tradition, would not exactly be very well received. You know, in plenty of historical times, the way he criticized established sources of authority would have earned him a trip to get him burned on the public square. On the West Coast in the 60s, however, was a bit of a different story. For better or worse, and there are definitely quite a few people who argue in both directions, the 1960s turned upside-down American culture. You had the latter phases of the civil rights movement, the movement against the Vietnam War, organizations like the Black Panther Party and the American Indian Movement. Timothy Leary and the popularity of psychedelic culture. You, know, you had people rejecting the racism of previous generations and beginning to look outside of traditional Western culture for sources of inspirations. The values of the previous generations were regularly questioned and criticized. Question authority, which is a concept that Lee very much loved, became one of the favorite slogans of the 60s. The sexual revolution shocked the Puritan attitudes that had affected sexuality in the US for a while. Free experimentation with anything, from drugs to politics, was quite popular. From music to cinema, all forms of art experienced an incredible boost of creativity. The 60s were a decade of fast, extreme change, and so at a time when no forms of established authorities were going unchallenged, it was inevitable that the same would happen in the martial arts world. You know, it's like the context called for it, and Bruce Lee delivered. The philosophy of JKD is the result of a mixture of Taoism and Buddhism, the culture of the 60s, and Bruce Lee's own unique personality, all mixed together. You know, Danny said, "Bruce was anti-establishment, the voice of the 60s." He questioned everything. He said, if you don't question it, you can't grow. Now I could go on talking about Bruce Lee's philosophy all day, but, because as you can probably tell I very much enjoy the topic, but for the sake of continuing our story, I won't. So back to the chronological narration of Bruce Lee's life. A few weeks after the fight with One Jack Mann, Linda gave birth to Brandon. Their son on February 1st, 1965. As Bruce would describe his son, our first child is a blonde, grey eyed Chinaman. Just three days later, Lee had a screen test for acting. You know, remember how I mentioned how after the Long Beach tournament, J.C. Sebring had recommended him to a producer? Well, the screen test was the result of that. The footage of that screen test is still available today, by the way. You know you can probably find it in multiple places. If you watch the video, Lee comes across in a way that makes it difficult to see how anybody would not hire him on the spot. He had the perfect balance between charm, athleticism, humor, and self-confidence. There's definitely a bit of cockiness about him but it's a endearing kind of cockiness, so it sort of works for him. You know, there's a line that, my daughter loves this line, she laughs every time I mention it, and she quotes it fairly regularly, but there's a Bruce Lee line that kind of captures it. It says, If I tell you I'm good, probably you will say I'm boasting. But if I tell you I'm not good, well, then you'll know I'm lying. Which is funny, but at the same time, not exactly untrue in this case. Now, the producer, William Dozier, was suitably impressed with the screen test. He promised that things would work out and gave him some money. But in classic Hollywood fashion, you know, he started a whole waiting game for it now. Putting a less pleasant end to a very eventful week, a few days later, uh, Bruce's father died. So he immediately left for Hong Kong for the funeral while Linda and Brandon went to stay with Linda's mom. But by May, Bruce, Linda, and baby Brandon all left for Hong Kong for a four-month trip to to stay close to the family. It was the first time that Linda visited Hong Kong. Uh, She would write, Everyone made me feel like a welcome member of the family. I did not receive any of the prejudicial reaction that Bruce had endured with my family their attitude was that Bruce knew what he was doing and they would not be able to influence him one way or the other and they were very proud of their first grandchild during the course of the trip um, Bruce also went to visit his teacher Yip Man and brought Brandon along with him by the time they got back to US things were not looking great Lee had grown frustrated with Hollywood promises that didn't seem to materialize and he was running out of money. So by September 1965 he, they briefly moved back to Seattle to stay with Linda's mom. Four months later they moved back to Oakland to James Lee's house. But eventually Bruce and James had to close the Oakland school because there just weren't enough students. And so obviously he was worried about how to make a living. On the Hollywood front, there was a show that Dozier was planning, but that was rejected by ABC because they did not want to have an Asian lead star. They didn't say it explicitly, but that's what everyone knew the real reason was. Dozier, however, was working on another show called The Green Hornet, which was a popular 1930s radio serial. Very much like Batman, you know, millionaire by day, mask crime fighter by night. And it included a sidekick named Kato, who was the Green Hornet's resourceful kung fu battler and chauffeur. Those are called Bruce to offer him the part, which was not a lead in his own series, but rather, you know, if you look at it for what it was, he essentially was asked to play a man servant to the lead white star. Bruce was not thrilled, but money's money, and Dozier promised that Cato's role would be made cooler than simply being uh, the Green Hornet servant. So Bruce agreed, he moved to LA in 1966 to film the Green Hornet, and specifically they moved at one point at close to the intersection of Wilshire and Gailey, pretty much right next to UCLA, which is also next to where I went to school there for a while, and this was the first time that Linda and Bruce would share a real home on their own. But basically they moved all over LA in this period. They stayed in Inglewood, Culver City, and a few other parts. And so with this, Bruce Lee's acting adventure was on its way. You know, the show, The Green Hornet, definitely was not the greatest series ever created. It's kind of cheesy. You know, if you watch it today, it's uh, sort of as this uh, dime store version of Batman kind of feeling. But with his presence, Bruce Lee turned a mediocre show and made it into something you'd actually want to watch. His action scenes were the show. You know, that was the beginning and end of why people tuned in. Um, It's said that his action scenes were actually too fast for the camera to catch. So he had to slow them down, and once he did, they look great. Uh, Martial artists across U.S. love the Kato character because it was very rare for martial arts to be featured on mainstream television. You know, this was the first time that there was an exposure for kung fu in in Western mainstream TV. However. The show did okay in some segments, but by April 1967 ABC announced they would not renew the show for season 2. And there were no offers, there really was nothing to take its place, so things were back to being rough rather quickly. However, Linda says that the times after The Green Hornet were some of the happiest they ever had on a personal level, because yes, there wasn't that much money or success, but he was there for for her and Brandon and later for his daughter Shannon who was born in 1969. So Linda was actually rather happy that they had a bunch of time to spend together and say that he was a great father. Of course this came to the price of not having much money but to her this was a good trade. So for the time being Bruce had to go back to teaching. You know, he opened the Los Angeles school in Chinatown, and quite a few of Ed Parker's students started joining him for classes, including Danny O'Santo, who became his assistant. The school was more of a club than uh, than a school in a traditional sense. It was open to anyone. First few months, you were just taught physical conditioning, and many people quit because it was, you know, they were there to fight, and instead they were. The way Lee saw it is you needed to be given the tool to actually be able to fight, and if you weren't in shape, there wasn't even a point to start. But if people lasted a few months, then training would begin. There was no ranking, no belts, no formalities. He mainly wanted experienced martial artists, people who already knew something. The way he charged was interesting. Some people were charged a lot of money, and other people were allowed to train for free. If they were dedicated he sort of judged it on an individual basis if you have enough money great pay me up if you don't and i like you eh, okay don't pay me it's fine he had a miniature tombstone on a table in the school where there was uh, on the tombstone there was written in memory of the once fluid man crammed and distorted by the classical mess which was uh, another dig at traditional martial arts in more than one occasion, some businessmen offered Lee to open kind of a chain of martial arts schools around the country. Some, One of them wanted to call them the Kato Karate Schools. Lee clearly could have made lots of money with it, but this went completely against his philosophy. You know, his whole thing was about emphasis on the individual rather than a system. No belts, no uniforms, none of that kind of McDojo stuff. Of course, it was a tough decision. Because they were, you know, he would leave tons of money on the table if he stepped away, but at the same time he would compromise the quality of his work. And despite the fact that money was running short, he refused. While this stuff was going on, he was also busy teaching some very accomplished martial artists, including top competitive karate guys like Mike Stone, Joel Lewis, and Chuck Norris. Karate point fighting was uh, rather popular. The rules were weird though. The only strikes allowed were above the waist, Uh, there was no contact to be made with the face, Uh, uh, full power to the body. Now keep in mind there were different styles of karate point fighting and they didn't all follow what I just told you, but these were some of the common ones. Once you landed a strike, you had to stop and reset and Bruce found the rules completely stupid. But uh, but he did like these guys, Mike Stone, Joe Lewis, Chuck Norris. He was cool with them. He enjoyed training with them. Joe Lewis actually admitted that Lee helped him quite a bit and Chuck Norris too, to some degree. But, you know, some of them were hinting that they weren't really Bruce Lee students. They just worked out together. Bruce found this a little bit annoying because he said they want to learn from me but want others to feel that they are equal or almost equal to me. And they want me to say that they are working out with me. To me, working out is for them to contribute also, but they don't. It's all one-sided. But again, some of them, like Lewis, for example, gave Lee much more credit than, uh, than Mike Stone did, for example. Among other things to make some money, he also tried to give private lessons to Hollywood stars, Initially, there were no takers. But in perfect Hollywood fashion, you know, when he was charging reasonable amounts, nobody took him up for it. Then he started doubling his fees, and suddenly everybody was impressed, and they lined up for it, which makes zero sense on some level. But I guess there is a psychological factor that people are feeling that, oh, there must be something amazing if he's charging so much. Um, the successful screenwriter Sterling Silliphant and the writer Joe Ians, or ians I'm not sure how to pronounce his name they both chose to study with him and a silly would say I owe my spirituality to Bruce Lee in my lifetime I never met another man who was even remotely at his level of consciousness so surely enough Lee started getting his name around in Hollywood at least if not as an actor as a martial art teacher In 1968, for example, at a party, Lee demonstrated his one-inch punch to James Coburn, who was a big star at the time, who quickly became a student. Uh, Speaking of big stars, also Steve McQueen, also became a private student. There were some similarities between the two of them, actually. Both had a parent who had been addicted to drugs. Both were really smart, but had been terrible students in school. Both had more than a little experience in the streets the story and again I'm not entirely sure how reliable it is or not there are different theories here but Bruce Lee didn't like to drink at parties because he was a bit allergic to alcohol something that's actually fairly common among quite a good chunk of East Asian people and that supposedly Steve McQueen turned him on to marijuana and the tale is that you know Lee enjoyed quite a bit marijuana and you know, after training and chatting about philosophy, um, the people who argue that he did use marijuana a bit suggest that this allowed him to mellow out and he would turn into a more quote-unquote regular human than being always a super hyper as he usually was. So whether this is true or not, I mean in some ways secondary, but Bruce kind of was the prototype of the hippie samurai. You know, philosophy and 60s vibe but at the same time insane discipline and he was a physical specimen. Among his students there was Blake Edwards who was um, from Breakfast at Tiffany's and a whole other bunch of films, uh, director Roman Polanski and basketball legend Karim Abdul-Jabbar. So for the two years following the end of the Green Hornet, Bruce didn't find much work in Hollywood other than teaching. However, his student Sterling Siliphant I mentioned earlier, was always trying to find work for him, created a part for him in uh, Marlowe, in which uh, in this film you know Bruce shows up and essentially destroys an office putting on this dramatic physical performance. So he picked up a small part in that film or in TV shows called like TV shows like one of them was called Ironside. Also did some fight choreography for the movies but one problem he had is that he was very outspoken which clearly in Hollywood, that's a problem author Bruce Thomas said this didn't win over many moral lies in an industry whose wheels tend to run smoother when oiled by bullshit which is fairly accurate so he was able to, you know, getting a little part here and there was nice doing some choreography was better than nothing but he really didn't move the needle much. His acting career wasn't really taking off, which initially may seem weird if you consider his undeniable charm and how electrifying his screen presence was. But it is only weird if you conveniently ignore the obvious elephant in the room. And that is, Bruce Lee was not white. No one who looked like him was a major star on tv or in feature films and it's not even that the Hollywood industry was inherently racist it wasn't racism for racism's sake but racism because they felt that that's what the average American was willing to pay for you know Hollywood worship one thing and one thing only and that's money like most industry like most corporations like most of you know these guys don't really care about ideas if they do care about ideas they are far secondary to the money making part so in Hollywood there's tremendous fear of making bad decisions because with each film costing millions and millions of dollars if you make a mistake it's one too many and your career can go down the toilet the reality is that most of the time they have no idea what is going to sell and what's not gonna sell so that tends to make them ultra conservative and by that i don't mean politically conservative i mean in terms of creating something different from what has already been proven successful so as it applies to lee they were absolutely scared of the idea of investing in an asian star because they were afraid that white audiences would not identify and would not pay money to watch For some reason, they have this idea that people will only watch if the lead star is of their same ethnicity. Which, I don't know, maybe there's some truth to it, maybe not, but in any case. And also, they tend not to do new things, because there's no proof that it's successful yet. So, you know, the standard Hollywood model is to tend to repeat a successful formula which is the reason why you see six million remakes and movies with the same plot and actors getting typecasted because if you played that role well once, well, now every time that role comes up, you know, you are the dark, handsome guy. Okay, we'll typecast you into that. You are the tragic character. You are the funny one. You are the... And that's all you ever call for. So no money was risking money on some unknown Chinese actor. On top of it, Lee had a major accent, which, you know, I don't understand these people who don't learn how to speak good old-fashioned American. How can they possibly speak with an accent after living in the U.S. for a while? Yeah, I can relate just a tad to that concept, you know, the accent part, not the easiest thing to get rid of. I had actually not so long ago when I was researching for this episode, I was watching some um, footage of Bruce Lee, interviews and stuff not the films and i noticed more than i ever noticed before just how thick the accent was and so i asked the wonderful Savannah riem i said hey is my accent as thick as lee because that's pretty heavy and she just burst out laughing because she said yeah if you wish you know you are your accent is way thicker than his so okay i stay castigated in my corner in any case, Lee had a story in mind for something that he wanted Silliphant to write. It would be called the Silent Flute. It was the story of a martial artist's journey of self-discovery through trials, fights with rivals, and inner searching. It was absolutely perfect for Bruce since this was part fighting and part philosophy. It was a very ambitious project because it featured way more philosophy than any Kung Fu movie ever made. And it would be kind of difficult to pull off for multiple reasons. The screenplay was designed to feature, of course, a lot of violence and a lot of sex and quite a bit of philosophy as well. The plan was to have Steve McQueen star in it because he knew that no one would give him a starring role. And, you know, McQueen could star and then Lee himself would have a great supporting role. McQueen, however, didn't really want to do it, and he said that he kind of understood that the screenplay was designed in such a way that would benefit Lee more than him, so he wasn't that interested. Which is kind of, I mean, I guess it's weird and it's not, you know, Bruce Lee and Steve McQueen were friends, but clearly up to a point. McQueen was not exactly out to do him any favors there. Lee felt a little bit betrayed by that. He he got quite upset with this and told Silifant that he would uh, one day he would become more famous than Steve McQueen just to spite him. Silifant loved Bruce Lee, but he thought he had gone off the deep end. I mean Bruce Lee, kind of small Chinese guy with a heavy accent, becoming bigger than Steve McQueen. I mean, regardless of how talented Silifant believed that Bruce Lee was and he truly believed he was phenomenally talented, he didn't think there was a chance in hell that that could ever happen. And the reason was simple, you know, just wake up and smell the racism. In Siliphant's words, I told him there was no way he could be that, that he was a Chinese in a world run by white men. But I was wrong, and ow, for in the end, he went out and proved himself. because. By the time it's all said and done, Bruce Lee, in terms of worldwide fame and name recognition and all of that, will be bigger than Steve McQueen. But that time is not there yet. You know, James Coburn was willing to star in it, and he was a big enough actor. Siliphant, however, had too many projects going on, so he was like kind of postponing, saying I will get to it, but not really right now. Lee, in the meantime, badly needed this project to advance his career and pay his bills. So now that the project looked, if not dead, and at least stalled, he felt this heavy weight on him because he felt that he was essentially failing to take care of his family and failing in his goals. So he was not in the greatest frame of mind here. In this already gloomy scenario, other disturbing things were happening in Bruce Lee's immediate circle. On August ninth, 1969, Sharon Tate, the actress, uh, Jay Sabring, the one who had recommended Bruce Lee to the producer William Dozier and got him the role on The Green Hornet, and a couple of friends were hanging out at Sharon Tate's home. The legendary music producer Quincy Jones had also planned on being there but ended up not going. Steve McQueen had also been invited but his girlfriend wanting some sweet hot McQueen alone time removed him from the picture. Bruce Lee had taught some martial arts to Sharon Tate on the set of a movie and their husband Roman Polanski had hired Bruce Lee for private lessons for himself. But it is where things go really ugly. Members of the Manson family entered a house where the four above mentioned were staying and murdered all of them. You know, it's an insanely complicated story. So, of course, I'm not going to tell you the Manson family murder all in like six seconds because it involved cultish-like behavior, conspiracies, massive amount of drugs... You know, we won't get into explaining it all because that's a never-ending rabbit hole. I mean, to this day, there are arguments about the reasons for why the Manson cult members committed the murders, anything from wanting to start a race war to creating confusion to cover their tracks for a series of crimes having to do with drug deals gone bad. So we're not going there because that's a whole episode by itself pretty much. But unlike in... Quentin Tarantino's film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood there will be no Brad Pitt or Leonardo DiCaprio to come save them when Tate was murdered Bruce Lee was living not that far away and in the following days in his grief paranoia Roman Polanski at one point suspected Bruce Lee of the murders and the reason is wild and bizarre but basically what had happened was the only clue that they had about who may have committed the murder was that they had discovered a pair of sunglasses there. Actually, not sunglasses. Actually, prescription glasses. Yeah, that's the correct one. They were prescription glasses that somebody had left behind that did not belong to any of the victims. So they figure probably one of the killers did it. And when he went to visit Bruce Lee, Polanski heard Lee said that he had recently lost his glasses. So, admittedly, that's very thin evidence, but enough to make a grieving Polanski extra paranoid. Now, eventually, it didn't take long to sort things out because Polanski immediately was like, huh, you know what, let me take care of that. I will buy you a new pair of glasses. What's your prescription? And Bruce Lee did, didn't suspect anything, and they told him what the prescription was and then Polanski realized that the prescription was completely different from the glasses left behind at his house and so clearly Lee had nothing to do with it. If lack of money and terrible things happening to people close to him weren't enough, in 1970 Bruce injured his back while lifting weights and ended up in major pain after the workout. The injury was severe. He had damaged a nerve, and there was severe muscle spasms. So he was bedridden and in constant pain for quite a while. He would end up having three months of bed rest, for which, for an hyperactive guy like him, was like a death sentence. On top of it all, he was unable to keep making house payments, and it wasn't clear if he would ever be back to his former shape. I mean, some doctors were arguing he'd never do martial arts again, maybe not even walk again. So clearly there was a lot of anxiety over his future. Depression crept in, Uh, his career had hit a wall, his financial situation was far from good. Physically he was hurt, he was unable to train and with major question marks on his future. So Linda had to start working to make some money, which made Lee feel even more of a failure. This is really as dark as it gets for him. This is where things are really not going well. So one thing that he did was he would engage in a practice where he would see all his fears and his doubts as written words on paper. He would write them down and then he would crush them and throw them away. Clearly he was haunted by the fear that he would never be able to practice martial arts again nor be able to provide for his family, Never mind all his dreams of success going down the drain. Um, but at the same time he made use of this period and started writing down notes that would later be published under the title The Tao of Jet Kune Do. Eventually it took five months, but he did manage to recover against the doctor's expectations. And so with James Coburn and with Siliphant, they went to India because what happened was Warner Brothers would only agree to doing the movie The Silent Flute if he was shot in India. And the reason, because Warner Brothers had some money that was made in India, but the Indian government would not let it out of the country, so Warner Brothers was like, hey, you guys can use this money if you go to India, but otherwise, no, we're not making the movie. Lee was in tremendous pain, but he went anyway. And the other two, Siliphant and Coburn, felt that shooting in India would have been difficult. Lee, however, just didn't want to take no for an answer. Uh, He was not in a position to take no for an answer, you know. He needed a win badly. So there was a bit of tension building up during this frustrating trip. Um, Bruce felt kind of let down by his friends. Uh, He believed that they could make India work and that the chemistry of their team was strong enough to deal with some minor production difficulties. But Siliphant and Coburn were much more negative about it and thought they could not find in India what they were looking for. Um, For Siliphant and Coburn, though, this was annoying, but they would go back to having their super successful careers. Lee instead would go back home to failure and possible bankruptcy. So, things were really going nowhere for him. His friends raising the white flag in the face of a few difficulties felt a bit like a personal betrayal to him. Now, Siliphant, on the other hand, I mean, you gotta appreciate, he was looking out for Bruce Lee in multiple ways, and he came to the rescue with another gig, you know, nothing life-changing, but again, better than nothing. He created a part for him in a series he was writing called The Long Street. And Lee had the chance to more or less play himself as a martial arts teacher with a thing for philosophy this is where there's the whole uh, be water my friend dialogue that Lee would also later use in interviews there's you know these lines that were original Siliphant lines but um, adapted later by Bruce Lee empty your mind, be formless, shapeless, like water now if you put water into a cup, it becomes the cup pour water into a teapot, it becomes the teapot Water can flow or creep or drip or crash. Be water, my friend. Those are you know, iconic lines that you hear all the time when Bruce Lee is quoted. Now, in the meantime, while this was going on, Bruce Lee visited his mom in Hong Kong in 1970 and found out that the Green Hornet was a huge hit in Hong Kong and almost exclusively because of his role as Cato. The show was getting great ratings all over Asia, and it was almost entirely because of him. The thing was, in Hong Kong, well, everywhere in the world, really, but definitely in Hong Kong at this time, Hollywood was a myth. Hollywood was the place. So the idea that a Chinese actor had done something there made everyone super proud. So... In Hong Kong, they started having TV interviews, everybody wanted a piece of Bruce Lee, kind of get a sense of the the one Chinese guy was able to do something in Hollywood. And Lee killed it in these interviews, partially because of his talent, partially his vibe, you know, he came across as this very free individual in a culture heavily influenced by customs and traditions. He was both very familiar and very foreign at the same time, which was the perfect mix to be quite liked by lots of people in Hong Kong. At another time, he may have not been as well-received, but in the late 1960s, early 1970s, people were a bit more open to that. Now, at this time in Asia, uh, the Show Brothers had the biggest filmmaking studios out there, Truth be told, a lot of the movies were kind of amateurish. You know, they often had no script and they made up lines as they went. They would often be shot in a week. Um, they dish heavy on sex and violence, and they were really thin on plot. Typically, most people were not paid very well. Uh, you know, the producers made money, and then there was a little money to go around, but not a whole lot. So. The Shaw Brothers made a really low offer to Bruce Lee to star in one of their movies, and he said no and went back to the US. In the meantime, though, in Hong Kong, uh, Raymond Chow had opened his own studios, Golden Harvest Studios. The Shaw Brothers had a near monopoly over distribution, and Raymond Chow had worked for Ran Ran Shaw, the head of movie making in Hong Kong. But he had eventually broken up with him and started his own company. So Chao now arrived making an offer to Lee. And Lee used the leverage. He had an offer from the Show Brothers, he had an offer from Chao, and he could kind of pit them against each other to some degree. So he went back to the Show Brothers and said, OK, $10,000 for a movie and the right to change the script and control fight choreography. Um, The showbrothers offered $5,000 and nothing about scripts or choreography. So Lee turned around and signed with Raymond Chow, Golder Harvest, instead. He would star in two movies, Um, still low money, but a little better than what he had been previously offered, and he would be the star of both movies. So with no doors opening in Hollywood, Bruce Lee chose to roll the dice in Asia. The first film was entitled The Big Boss. Well, in US, it would be released under the title Fists of Fury. By the way, keeping track of Bruce Lee's titles is a nightmare because pretty much every one of them is released under at least two different titles and often the title are some of them are references to other titles that were out there, so it's a complicated mess. But for the sake of simplicity, let's call it The Big Boss and this one was going to be filmed in Thailand. Uh, it's safe to say that this was not the most professional movie setup ever. There was basically no script, just some idea not fully hushed out for a plot, and the rest was left to improvisation. Uh, on top of it, they did not record sound as it happened, and you would be added later. So during the filming, the director actually played the broadcast from the racetrack where he was heavily betting on horses and dog races. Uh, He was obviously way more invested in gambling than he was in directing the movie. The conditions on the set were... I mean, if this wasn't bad enough, they were terrible in other ways. They were filming in a tiny village infested with mosquitoes and cockroaches. There was little food to go around. Lee during the shooting dropped from 145 down to 128 pounds, and not because he wanted to, just because of the intense physical effort plus little food. In addition to everything else, he had to take injections for back pain every day. Um, to make things even weirder, there are a few scenes that were shot in an actual brothel, because, you know, why not use the real thing, waste time creating a set, why do that? So the whole thing was bizarre, to say the least. One of the clashes that Li had with the director is that he wanted more realism in the fight choreography, whereas the director wanted to shoot like those fantasy fight scenes that were typical of Chinese kung fu films, where he used wires, people look like they are flying, and all that stuff. The director complained that Li only knew three kicks. Whereas, uh, say, oh, you'd always do the same thing. Whereas Lee argued that the director understood nothing of fighting. And so they were clashing with one another a lot. Raymond Chow took a look at the early footage and sided with Bruce Lee. So the first director was fired. And then they brought a new one, Lo Wei, as a replacement. Loe Wei was a bit of an authoritarian with a rather sizable ego. And Bruce well, we know what his relationship with authority was like, so needless to say they were not exactly each other's biggest fans, but somehow they managed to find a compromise and make it work. The storyline of the movie goes something like this. Um, The character played by Bruce Lee was sort of a troublemaker sent to Thailand to work among relatives, with the promise made to his mom before leaving that he would not fight. So he wears this necklace to remind him, kind of a pendant to remind him of his promise. Needless to say, it wouldn't be a martial art movie if this follows through. So what happens is that the place where he and other Chinese workers are employed is an ice factory. But that's a front for a drug smuggling operation that, however, the workers know nothing about. Two workers discover some heroin in ice and are killed, and so these give a good excuse for Bruce Lee as the avenging hero for poor oppressed Chinese workers. That's basically the general plotline. Now in the meantime, while this is happening, Paramount offered him to sign for a few more episodes of Longstreet, which increased Bruce Lee's value in the eyes of Hong Kong producers. So now... The Shaw brothers realized that Lee was a really hot commodity and so started making him better offers. In the meantime, Lee kept a fairly good relationship with the press, and in one occasion when he was asked how he compared with uh, Jimmy Wang Yu, who was the Hong Kong biggest action star, Lee replied that the big boss would be out soon and uh, rather than listening to him bragging, it would be best for people to watch it and draw their own conclusions. So after pretty much issuing this challenge, he returned to Hollywood and filmed three episodes of Long Streets, all, you know, small parts with little dialogue, but some good money. And he received very positive reviews for his performance in there, mainly for the first episode that he had done where he played a larger role also while this was going on you may recall we mentioned it earlier that um, Lee had been working for actually a few years on uh, on a story that currently produced by his daughter Shannon for Cinemax under the title Warrior um, I strongly recommend it by the way and he had been working on this idea for a few years and he was trying to push it now that he was getting some traction to see if he could get it done but the idea met with some resistance at Warner Brothers um, Lee would say about it. What's holding things up now is that a lot of people are sitting around in Hollywood trying to decide if the American television audience is ready for an oriental hero. We could get some really peculiar reactions from places like the Deep South. So, back to the same issue. He was too Chinese for Hollywood. And that was, you know, as racist as that sounds, that was just the reality. Eventually, Warner Brothers called him at the end of 1971 and they told him that they would not do Warrior. They, uh, you know what they are gonna do instead? We're gonna do a show called Kung Fu. And, you know, Lee seemed the obvious choice since the story would be about a Eurasian Kung Fu master uh, traveling around the Old West. Uh, But no, we're actually not gonna hire you because you have a heavy accent and you are too Chinese. I mean, they're not going to say that, but everybody knows that that's why. Instead, we're going to hire uh, David Carradine. And, you know, he really doesn't know any Kung Fu and he's a white guy, but we'll have him squint the whole time to give him a more almond-shaped eyes, and at least he speaks good old-fashioned American, so everything is good. Uh, you know... It's hard to spin it in a way that doesn't sound horrendously racist because that's kind of the reality of what happened. Again, they were too smart to say it in the terms that I just spelled out, but everybody understood that that's what was going on. Caradine, by the way, didn't do a bad job other than the horrendously offensive squinting the whole time to look more Chinese. He, uh, He was nominated for an Emmy and the Golden Globe. And you know Warner Brothers justified itself by arguing that there were two treatments, and they had kung fu before Bruce Lee had his ideas forward. Whereas Bruce's wife Linda argued that they just flat out stole the idea and some key plot lines. And this is a bone of contention, and one that likely will never be fully solved. In any case, it was clear that the American angle wasn't working, whereas stuff was working in Hong Kong. So Lee sold his home in the United States and moved to Hong Kong. While Linda and the kids went along in late 1971. Raymond Cho's challenge to the Shaw brothers was a long shot and he desperately needed a success, so he invested heavily in publicizing The Big Boss. Hong Kong cinema is an interesting thing you know the reputation that the crowd said was of being particularly rough you know if they didn't like a movie they would boo or they would even tear up the chairs from the theater. if unhappy in some cases there were reports of people not liking the film and then they would tear up the seats with knives so yike that's you really don't want a bomb out there In October 1971, uh, Big Boss had its premiere and Bruce and and Linda attended the premiere and this is how he describes it. As the movie progressed, we kept looking at the reaction of the fans. They hardly made any noise at the beginning, but at the end they were in a frenzy and began clapping and clamoring. In Linda's words... That night, every dream that Bruce had ever had came true, as the audience rose to its feet with thunderous, cheering applause. You know, They received the standing ovation while they recognized them there, that they were attending the premiere, people went crazy, and again, to quote from Linda, in less than two hours of action on the screen, Bruce became a glittering star and as we left the theater, we were absolutely mobbed. Within the first few weeks, over 25% of the population of Hong Kong saw the movie. Despite the terrible production values, the fact is what drove the movie was Bruce's own intensity and his fighting choreography. His energy was coming through the, the camera. His presence, his screen presence is something else and makes it all worthy. He had that kind of insane on-camera charisma and the result was that The Big Boss was a huge box office success. Uh, this left the show Brothers furious that they had not signed him. Before even the premiere of The Big Boss, um, Lee was already starting to work on the next movie, entitled uh, originally Feast of Fury, but because of confusion in the United States, he would be called, since the first one they had called it Feasts of Fury, in the US he would be released under the title The Chinese Connection. Again, there would be Low Wei directing, and again the usual barely-existent screenplay. Um, Lee thought the whole thing was still really amateurish, and he felt that the director wasn't taking his job seriously. Low Wei, on the other hand, felt like, hey, man, you're some young actor who just showed up, I don't want to be criticized by you, so there were some clashes there. The film was set in the early 1900s, and the story is based on the life of a famous kung fu master, Huo Yanja, and uh, the story was remade by Jet Li in the film Feast of Legend, which is also a prequel to another Jet Li film, Fearless. The tale revolves around the character, played by Bruce Lee, discovering that his master, Huo, was poisoned by Japanese occupiers. And going on a revenge spree, which includes plenty of Bruce Lee showing off his skills against the Japanese martial artists. One of the th- there's definitely a strong nationalistic element in the storyline. There's a scene in which Lee beats up an entire karate school and destroys his calligraphy that was insulting the Chinese, describing them as the sick man of Asia. Um and at the end he delivers this line where he says, now you listen to me. I'll only say this once, the Chinese are not the sick men of Asia. In another scene he also destroyed a sign that said no dogs or Chinese allowed at the entrance of a park. So this theme really played well with Chinese audiences. But ultimately, much like the first film, the success of the movie revolved all around Bruce Lee's fiery personality and fighting skills They were exploding from the screen. You know, seeing him, the way he played things you know, seeing him as this fearless character, a little bit cocky, was something that gave Chinese people a lot of pride. And Chinese pride made the film a huge hit. But clearly not just Chinese, because it became a very popular film throughout all of Asia. You know, in Singapore, well, granted, Singapore has a heavy, heavy Chinese presence, but they stopped screening the film for a while because of major traffic problems created by masses wanting to access the theater. In the Philippines, it ran for six months straight, which is pretty crazy for a new movie. They even liked it in Japan, Despite the strong anti Japanese vibe of the film, the film was made for just about $100,000 and eventually, not right away, of course, but by now it has earned over $100 million. So the return is insane, you know, produced for nothing and made a ton of money. The Shaw Brothers, who had, remember they had offered $10,000 to Bruce Lee, now they are offering him $200,000 to star, but he turned them down. You know, by now every Asian producer wanted him. Um, But what Bruce Lee truly wanted was to write and direct his own next movie, mainly because the studio so far had hired talentless hacks out to make a quick buck with no care for quality and he wanted to do something that actually would be a little more his movie, something where he wasn't just an actor putting on the charisma, but that the movie would reflect some of his ideas. There was no actor in China or in Hong Kong at this time who could flex that kind of power. On the set, by the way, you know, despite fighting with the studio heads, with the director and all of that, He was the absolute hero of the stuntmen. You know, people, including Jackie Chan, who later would become a very famous and ultra-successful actor, but at this time was just a stuntman. Chan testified that Lee was always hanging out with the stuntmen, always sitting down to eat the same food that they were served, would pay for their medical bills, would take care of them, and they all loved him for it. Um, Bolo Young and co-star in in a movie I haven't mentioned yet said he got along really well with the low-level people on set but he was extremely impolite to his boss in the real world it's always the reverse kiss up to your boss and act like a tyrant to the people below you Lee was just the opposite he was kind to those below him and mean to those above him which tells you something about his personality I guess in any case, that what I mentioned a minute ago, that strong element of patriotism that had made uh, the film very popular in China was a bit of a tricky subject for Bruce Lee. As I mentioned, at this stage, he was still purely an actor with no control over the scripts. Otherwise, it's very likely that that particular theme would have played out very differently in the movie. The fact was, Bruce Lee was... Formerly not a fan of nationalism. As someone who was not a hundred percent Chinese and was targeted for that reason, Bruce Lee was all too familiar with the kind of xenophobia and racism that are often the close cousins of nationalism. Even in 1971, as the movie was having tremendous success, he was feeling some pressure in this regard. Bruce was partially American culturally. Um, he had an American-Caucasian wife. He was big on the concept of individual versus group thinking. He was against belonging and the idea of identity. These were not the kind of things that made the proponents of a virulent Chinese patriotism all too happy. You know, During an interview with a Chinese reporter, he was asked about his interracial marriage and if that was going to be a problem. And Li replied... Many people may think that it will be. But to me, this kind of racial barrier does not exist. If I say I believe that everyone under the sun is a member of a universal family, you may think that I'm bluffing and idealistic. But if anyone still believes in racial differences, I think it's too backward and narrow. No matter if your color is black or white, red or blue, I can still make friends with you, without any barrier. During another interview, uh, the host, uh, Pierre Burton, had asked him, Do you still think of yourself as Chinese or do you ever think of yourself as North American? Lee, in characteristic style, replied, Do you know how I want to think of myself? As a human being. So clearly, he had this very Diogenes, citizen of the world vibe to him. It's like he wanted to be judged for his merits as an individual not for his membership in any one group, not for being Chinese or being American or being anything. He was Bruce Lee, period. That's where it began, that's where it ended with him. And even in terms of his martial arts, Bruce Lee was clear that his Jeet Do was no longer a purely Chinese art, but was a hybrid. Uh, he said, you have to go outside your environment to achieve something better. Some people will say, hey, that's a Korean kick, we can't use that. But I don't care, it all belongs to mankind. In that article in Black Belt magazine that I, I quoted from before, it's a phenomenal article, not that long and it really captures Bruce Lee's philosophy, you can probably find it online, it's called Liberate Yourself from Classical Karate. He said that his approach was, I quote, primarily concerned with the blossoming of a martial artist, not a Chinese martial artist or a Japanese martial artist. A martial artist is a human being first, just as nationalities have nothing to do with one's humanity, so they have nothing to do with the martial arts. Now, think about that. Nationalities have nothing to do with one's humanity. That's as clear and controversial as a stance as it can get. You know, if you stop to think how many people throughout history have killed and died in the name of a flag and national identity, you can see how Bruce Lee's approach was smoke in the eyes of fervent nationalists. This bothered the racists in America, but it also bothered the most ethnocentric among the Chinese. So he was making friends everywhere, I guess. This theme would show up in Bruce Lee's third movie the first over which he had creative control and could inject his ideas, since he not only starred in it, but also wrote it and directed it. With the usual confusion over titles, the movie is called Return of the Dragon, but also The Way of the Dragon, so you can run into either of those. The theme of patriotism, and Bruce Lee's rejection of it, appears in the film during a dialogue with a fellow Chinese. In this conversation, Lee scoffs at his friend's patriotic refusal to study karate on the ground that it's a foreign art. To his friend's close-minded patriotism, Lee offers an open approach, willing to take what is useful from any available source. So it's in scene like this that you can clearly see Bruce Lee's hand in crafting the screenplay, injecting themes that were dear to him. The Way of the Dragon was filmed in Rome in 1972, first time that a Hong Kong film was done in the West. The storyline revolved around the Mafia bullying a family owning a Chinese restaurant in Rome. As usual, the character played by Bruce arrives to help the restaurant and is a chance for Bruce to prove that the success of the previous two movies had nothing to do with Lo way. Lee, in fact, had turned down working with Lo again and had chosen to direct the film himself. At the same time, after Bruce turned him down, Lo made a movie with Jimmy Wong Yu, Bruce's rival, so there was a bit of competition to see which one would be the biggest hit for Golden Harvest. By the time both movies were released and Bruce Lee's film again would turn out to be a monumental success, there would no longer be any doubt about who was Hong Kong's number one star. Uh, Bruce Lee simply wiped out the competition. One thing worth mentioning regarding The Way of the Dragon is that uh, actor Chuck Norris, and also famously karate champion Chuck Norris at this time, was hired to play a bad guy in the film. It was completely illegal to film among the ruins of the Coliseum in Rome but you know it's Italy so all you got to do is pass a few bills to the guards around and suddenly there you go you can film in the Coliseum which is exactly what happened so they film part of the scene in the Coliseum and part in Hong Kong recreating some of the Coliseum background the fight against Chuck Norris in the Coliseum is one of the most iconic in Bruce Lee's cinematography And in this fight, again, Bruce Lee inserted his philosophy. For the sake of drama, most martial art films show their heroes beginning the final fight of a film by losing. And typically it's only through sheer willpower that they are able to turn the table around and eventually triumph. Bruce Lee instead, in perfect Taoist fashion, changes fighting style to suit the situation. Uh, Whereas Chuck Norris... Is winning initially, but is bound to a particular style of fighting and he's unable to adapt. So once Bruce Lee adapts, he no longer can read the situation and pays the price for this lack of flexibility. This is a perfect visual example of JKD in action, with its idea of having no form in order to be able to assume all forms. It was also around this time that Lee wrote down the concept for another movie he had in mind, which would be called Game of Death. The plan was again to inject some of his philosophy in this film, and his student and basketball superstar, Karim Abdul-Jabbar, was visiting Hong Kong, so Lee asked him to shoot some fighting scenes that later could be included into Game of Death. Uh, The surviving footage of the fighting scene between seven Seven feet two inches tall, Karim Abdul Jabbar, against five seven, maybe, who knows? Nobody really is entirely sure about Bruce Lee's height. You know, the difference in height between the two is so ridiculous that it's something to behold, and the film is spectacular in that regard when they show that fighting scene. In that scene, you know, in the film, you see Bruce Lee wearing the yellow jumpsuit with black stripes that becomes iconic in his cinematography you know the same one that will be used in an homage to Bruce Lee by Uma Thurman in Kill Bill there's also a scene that he filmed with Danny Osanto as another one of the challenges in Game of Death after filming a few minutes of it he put aside Game of Death because he had uh, a big offer from Warner Brothers for the film that would become Enter the Dragon now years after Bruce Lee's death Raymond Chow would put together a story for Game of Death, which would be released in 1978, with, a, with some lookalikes for the scenes to justify releasing the few minutes of footage that Lee had shot with Inosanto and Karim Abdul-Jabbar, and then he built a whole storyline around, you know, the film really has very Bruce Lee in it, but the part that it does is great, the rest, not so much. Now, before jumping into a telling of the making of Enter the Dragon, it's worth pausing for a second to take in all that had happened in a really short time in Bruce Lee's life. In the span of less than two years, he had gone from having to worry about how to pay bills to a level of superstardom that is even hard to conceive. The odds of pulling off this kind of a success in such a short period of time are pretty much insane. It's the equivalent of winning the lottery four times in a row. Against all logic, despite being rejected by Hollywood, Bruce Lee had become one of the most successful actors in the world, a global superstar. So even Hollywood by now had to take notice, since Western audiences seem to be as fascinated with Bruce Lee as Asian audiences were. So in the space of a few months he went from being a relatively unknown to being a worldwide celebrity. When doors had been shut in his face he found a way to burst them open. His was as much as a success story as any you can think of. And yet, there's a part of his story that I never picked up on Until researching for this particular episode, there's a layer of sadness to this story that is not initially apparent. Because the reality is that, yes, Bruce Lee had tasted unbelievable success, but he had found it bitter. You know, you get a sense of this from an answer that he gave during an interview when they asked him, How has your life changed? How have you changed since you have gotten successful? And Lee replied, well, it has changed in the sense that it's like I'm in jail. You know what I mean? I'm like a monkey in the zoo, you know? People poking at me and things like that. These clearly don't sound like the words of someone who's enjoying fame a whole lot. But it was for more reasons than one would imagine. You know, let's start with the obvious, the kind of stuff that all famous people have to deal with the pressure of fame, of suddenly not being able to go anywhere, the fact that everyone wanted to challenge him to a fight, uh, to make a name for themselves. In one occasion, some stalker jumped the fence and entered the garden of his Hong Kong home to challenge him, while his kids were there playing in the garden. Bruce, remember, he had friends like Sebring and Tate murdered by people invading their homes, so... Granted, this guy was not a Manson follower, but still. So Bruce beat the hell out of him, and that was that. But, you know, he was feeling under siege. Photographers were stalking him everywhere, and all that kind of stuff. But these, you know, this happened to every celebrity. That's nothing new. In addition to this, Lee found out firsthand that fame as a way to poison friendship everyone wanted something from him now. You know, no conversation was just, hey, what's up, how are you doing? It's like everyone eventually would have that question coming up about what they they were looking to get out of him, which is something that, you know, I never had that level of fame, so I can't really relate. But I do think about it, like in times, like I'm trying to think about people who have achieved pretty insane fame that I know. I think about somebody like Joe Rogan. And nearly everyone, even the most well-intentioned people, want something from him. Because having him on your show or him lending his name in one way or another to something that you do can have a tremendous impact on success. I mean, I've seen it firsthand. You know, History on Fire pretty much doubled its audience overnight the last time I was on uh, the Joe Rogan podcast, you know, Joe Rogan Experience. I've been, uh, I think by the time I'm recording this, I've been on the Joe Rogan Experience nine times. And uh, before I, most of the early times, I did not have history on fire, but like the last time, literally from one day to the next, my numbers doubled. So clearly that creates some weird dynamics because it affects all relationship. you know? A guy like Rogan, let alone like a guy like Bruce Lee, who achieve a level of fame that's just out of this world, always have to deal with the fact of thinking you know does this dude want to talk to me because he genuinely wants to talk to me or because they want something like everyone else that's a tricky thing that creates uh, some strange dynamic you know Lee was surrounded by people and yet he was uh, very lonely Raymond Chao, his business partner May would make it sound like he was Bruce Lee's babysitter and he was the true architect of Lee's success. So Lee had lots of fame but was very short on real friends. In a letter to Mito Uyar, he wrote Well, my dear friend, lately friend has come to be a scarce word, a sickening game of watchfulness toward offer friendship. So there's that, that really when you get to that place, the only people you trust are the ones who are your friends beforehand. And even those, you know, in that regard, James Lee, who had been Bruce's friend for so long, died at the end of 1972. He had helped Bruce tremendously and had been a true friend, so this hurt Bruce deeply. Also, there were other factors. As I mentioned, you know, he was not at all a nationalist, but he had become a star in China because of nationalism. So many wanted him to be hyper-nationalistic and criticized him for having a Caucasian wife, for holding on to non-traditional Chinese ideas. There were plenty of fake rumors in the Hong Kong press, mostly pushed by the Shaw Brothers, you know, National Enquirer type of articles, accusing Bruce Lee of everything under the sun, Uh, In particular, there was a lot about his supposed relationship with actress Betty Ting Pei. We'll talk about that a little more later. So there was a lot of negative media, because ultimately controversy drives sales. So first you build the heroes, and then you tear them down. But again, most of the stuff I mentioned so far applies, if not to all celebrities, to many of them, for sure. But there was something else that, at an even deeper level, Lee experienced something more profound that raises serious questions regarding the meaning of success. Lee achieved what he achieved thanks to ultra-insane work ethics, his obsession with success and the insane pressure that he put on himself, plus constantly grinding to make things happen, constantly hustling, constantly working hard. And the idea was that so, if I do all this one day, I would have the lifestyle I want. But now that he achieved all that, he realized that fame and fortune would not deliver what he had been after all along. Now, please forgive me if I inject a more personal element into this, but this part of the story is particularly important to me. I originally planned on finishing this episode couple of years ago but got sidetracked with other projects and I really wanted to dedicate full attention to this so I didn't want to do a a rough job just doing it get it in and out quickly I wanted to have the time so I, I rather I chose to put it aside for a while until I could dedicate it full attention now at that time couple of years ago things in my life had turned around in a big way you know growing up for me money was a rather foreign concept as in something that was rarely seen around my house. You know, where I grew up in my home, there were pieces of the ceiling that were regularly falling. Uh, I remember a carpet that was sold that all the glue had come off, so it basically made waves. I could swear that there are probably still guests that are lost in the folds of the carpet screaming for a way out. Uh, As a kid, like most kids, you know, I love playing video games, but I no money for video games but you know what I had money for I had money for a magazine that came out every month reviewing video games so I would buy the magazine because it was only like a couple of bucks or something and then I would read about the video games and imagine what it would be like to play with them kind of thing so you know this is not to say I was the poorest person ever I wasn't you know compared to others I had it good but clearly I was not exactly swimming in gold you know I had it A little bit on the rougher end rather than not. None of these, by the way, was a mystery. Why? You know, it was a result of life choices, you know, and also some luck. My father pretty much repelled money. You know, if there was money anywhere around, somehow he would always be at the wrong place at the wrong time. And there were plenty of months when rent was due and money nowhere to be found. So again, not the deepest poverty. I always had food on the table, so that's pretty good but I was definitely not well off. A couple of years ago I found myself with more success and more money than I ever did. Now definitely not Bruce Lee kind of success and probably even money-wise not much by many people's standards, but for me for the way I grew up it's hardly even imaginable. It was great. And yet I remember how one day when all of this was happening and suddenly I was I had some breathing room money wise and I was like, whoa, I actually have a bank account. This is working nice. I remember how one day my lady, History on Fire editor Sovannery M, telling me something that really hit home. You know, there I was more successful than I had ever been but waking up and starting to work the moment I opened my eyes and not stopping until late into the night. I was stressed, I pushed myself all day, every day. And so Savanrin never wanted to talk a whole lot. You know, She said only a few words, but they really hit the target. She looked at me one day and she said, this doesn't look like success to me. That was that, you know, that was enough. And she was right. It's 100% right. You know, success should not mean working yourself ragged, obsessed with grinding to constantly produce more and achieve more. In some ways, the very qualities that allow you to achieve seemingly impossible things are the same ones that make it very difficult to sit back and enjoy success. A key concept in Taoist philosophy is Wu Wei the notion of effortless action, or achieving maximum result with minimum effort. Bruce Lee, like many people who achieve great success, clearly had mastered the maximum result part. It really doesn't get any better than the result that he had created for himself. Unfortunately, however, he hadn't mastered quite as well the minimum effort part. You know, Lee was also maximum effort, maximum result. And and that violates another Cardinal Daoist concept, which is the idea of knowing when to stop. When enough is enough. You know, as the exceptional human being that he was, and, and he was definitely very exceptional, Bruce Lee offers a bit of a cautionary tale. You know, he raises the incredibly important question to which I have no pre-package answer. You know, how how can you be effective and achieve great things without being obsessed? How can you develop those qualities that allow you to push and create something amazing while also developing the ability to sit back and enjoy, to know when to get the foot off the gas pedal? You know, most people can live as happy, relaxed Buddhas, and they can't accomplish great things no matter how much they try. So clearly they don't have either-or. You know, they don't have the relaxation, let's smell the roses and enjoy life, and they don't have the ability to hustle and achieve phenomenal things. But even if you achieve one of these things, you know, it's still a problem. Even if you consider the successful cases, you know, Bruce Lee's intensity was a gift that allowed him seemingly impossible things, and yet it also carried the curse of obsessiveness and quickness to anger. Obviously you don't become Bruce Lee by being a normal person. But this does not mean it's all easy and fun. You know, there's a price to pay for that degree of intensity. Bruce had been big on writing down goals. You know, early in nineteen sixty nine he had written I, Bruce Lee, will be the first highest-paid Oriental superstar in the United States. In return, I will give the most exciting performances and render the best of quality in the capacity of an actor. Starting 1970, I will achieve world fame and from then onward till the end of 1980, I will have in my possession $10 million. I will live the way I please and achieve inner harmony and happiness. Now, in a very short time, he had definitely pulled off the first part of that goal, being the highest-paid Oriental superstar in the United States and providing extremely exciting performances and so on. Uh, He did achieve worldwide fame in a way that hardly very few individuals did. Now, the $10 million part, he was nowhere near that by the time he died because he would still get, you know, everything had happened so quickly that the first couple of movies he made hardly any money. Then he started making some money, but the salary really had not caught up with his fame. But it's very reasonable to assume that had he lived long enough, he probably would have pulled off the part about the $10 million dollars it's entirely possible that had he lived long enough he may have also found a way to balance it all to get used to the pressure of success and perhaps even learn how to enjoy relaxation rather than always be burning 24-7 with intensity and maybe he would have found a way to live the way he pleased and to quote his words achieve inner harmony and happiness but that was definitely not the case in 1972 Supposedly he told uh, Bob Wall, the Tansu Do star who worked on these films. Fame is not what I thought it was. I, I haven't got time to train. Wall told him he suggested take some time off, but Lee couldn't. You know, He had to promote Enter the Dragon. If uh, The fear was that if he stepped off the gas pedal, everything he had worked so hard for could slip away. So in some way, he was a prisoner of fame and success. You know, we think the goal of fame and success is to be able to do what you want, but here instead, fame and success was, uh, were forcing him on a very unhealthy path. You know, the best thing he could have done at this point would be to take two months off and just lay down on a beach somewhere, but he couldn't even do that. You know, success was reducing his options rather than giving him more. All his wildest wishes were materializing before his eyes, and his life was getting harder because of it. He he was having constant headaches around this time. Not metaphorical ones, mind you, but very literal. Speaking of Enter the Dragon though, so let's turn the page to that part of the story. Uh, there's a quote, probably apocryphal, that it's sometime attributed to Winston Churchill. There are a few versions out there, but basically goes something along the lines of you can always count on Americans to do the right thing after they have tried everything else. Now, whether Churchill had anything to do with this quote or not, regardless, the point is this very much applies to Hollywood. You can always count on Hollywood to make the right move after it has been proven beyond the shadow of a doubt that it's the right move. After they had told no to Lee countless times, now that he had demonstrated that he was one of the most successful actors in the world, well, now they wanted to do a movie with him. So Warner Brothers offered him what he had always wanted being the lead star in a big Hollywood production and all control over fighting scenes. So this offer made Lee put Game of Death on hold. This was pretty much the first time that there would be a Hollywood martial art film. And this would forever change the way action scenes were shot. Up until that time, action in the West was anticlimactic, you know, mostly gunplay and not very spectacular. In Asia, on the other hand, it was completely unrealistic, you know, wires and people flying and dueling in the air and all that kind of stuff. Bruce Lee did something that was neither or you know, he, he, action was much more beautiful than it had traditionally been in western movies, but much more realistic than in Asian movies, and the result was that it influenced the choreography of every action movie I've ever seen after the 1970s. He had style, you know, when other people fought, viewers would only see a fight, when Lee fought, he was Poetry in Motion, you know, Marshall, but also art. The storyline... well, to be perfectly honest, the storyline was not much to write home about. You know, Like all Bruce Lee films, the exact same script with anyone other than Bruce starring would have been terrible. As always, he would end up carrying the movie through his charisma. Uh, it's a story about some evil drug lord organizing a martial art tournament on his own private island, and Lee going undercover to dig up evidence about the bad guy's illegal empire. There's also a bit of a revenge theme, since the bad guy's bodyguard was responsible for his sister's death. Lee thought that the screenplay was terrible, but it was a means to an end, you know, to make it as a star in Hollywood. Uh, he clashed with the screenwriter more than once you know in one occasion he asked for the screenwriter to go that he wanted somebody else the producer told him they did but they really didn't Uh, hong kong newspapers hyped up the idea of a chinese star being able to get rid of a western screenwriter. but then lee ran into the screenwriter on a ferry in hong kong and then at this point was like you know what i'm not even showing up to film if this is gonna be how it is so that's, there was a bit of drama there with Lee not showing up on the set because he thought the scripts sucked and they were not making the necessary changes and he would just not show up unless they make those changes. The producer eventually had to give in and agree to the changes in the screenwriting. Uh, one thing that Lee wanted was a lot more philosophical material. So for example, he wrote and directed the opening scene at the Shaolin Temple in which he's teaching martial arts to a young pupil and it features a fight between him and actor-martial-artist-choreographer Sammo Hong. The dialogue there includes a whole bunch of Zen sayings and concepts. In another moment of the film, uh, Lee reenacts a notorious samurai story about the art of fighting without fighting. Know, very much in the Japanese story, which is said to be based on a historical event, Lee, Lee's character is on a ship in the company of some arrogant martial artist who's just trying to bully everyone. And when this guy asks uh, rather rudely what style he practices, Lee's character reply, you can call it the art of fighting without fighting. And then this guy's like, what the hell are you talking about? Art of fighting without fighting? Let me see what you got. And Lee said, okay, okay, I'll accept, but on one condition. My style cannot be properly performed in such a tight space. So let's hop on this lifeboat. And then we'll row to that nearby island and then we'll fight over there. So the guy's like, okay, fine. I just can't wait to tear you apart. So the guy jumps into the lifeboat. And the moment he does, Lee's character just pushes the lifeboat from the ship, thereby getting rid of the obnoxious challenger without having to fight. And he uh, and say, well, that's what I meant by the art of fighting without fighting. You know, apparently Lee had planned to include a lot more philosophical material, but some of the scenes were cut for fear of being too complicated for the audience. Beside issues with the screenwriter, Uh, Bruce Lee wasn't always on the best terms with the director either. According to some reports, the director was uh, not being the nicest to him. Supposedly he changed the names in the script on purpose, picking names that would be difficult for Lee to pronounce. So again, if you listen to the reports, Lee wanted him off the set so he could directly take over the directing of the fighting sequences. Now, despite this maybe, again, it depends on which report you listen to, but possibly contentious relationship, the director had some fairly good things to say about Bruce Lee's athleticism. Uh, He would later state, I've been asked many times if Bruce was really as fast as people claimed. All I can say is he had the fastest reflexes I've ever seen. In one shot, Bruce was in a standoff with Bob Wall. In order to see his hand lash out and hit Bob, we had to speed up the camera to 30 frames a second. At normal speed, it didn't show on film. So that's quite something. Linda was apparently the only one who could mediate between Bruce and everyone else's demands. And in the meantime, all sort of drama was breaking out on the set. There was regular fighting on the set between different stuntmen who were associated with different Chinese gangs, uh, there were, they couldn't find any Chinese actress willing to play prostitutes for a western film and they had some in the script so they had to hire real prostitutes but even they had to be paid a lot because you know, the whole point of real prostitution is that they had to keep their identities hidden and in this case going on camera was not the greatest thing in that regard so was, there were quite a few dramas breaking out on a daily basis Bruce Lee had made three ultra successful blockbusters in two years. But against all available evidence, Warner Brothers still wasn't sure that American audiences would accept Lee as a lead star. So, just in case, they added two other actors, one white, John Saxon, and one black, Jim Kelly, to act as supports for Lee. Uh, incidentally, funny story, Jim Kelly was my neighbor for a bit in the 1990s. I remember in training in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in the communal gym of the place where we both lived. Um, I interacted with him only a few times. He was always nice, super polite, always with a big warm smile. In any case, Enter the Dragon was least shot at superstardom in the West. And he knew it. There was enormous pressure on him from the sudden fame, the back pain, the insane heat that they were working on, the emotional impact of knowing that your whole life can turn depending on how this one project works out. So throughout this period he hardly slept. Uh, he, as we mentioned multiple times, he was a fairly small guy to begin with and during the shoot he was losing weight at crazy speed. So intense was his effort during this period that he dropped 20 pounds, from 140 pounds to 120 pounds. Those were 20 pounds that he really couldn't afford to lose because he was really shredded and thin at 140. At 120, was just brutal. But the thing is, he didn't want to miss out on any opportunities. Uh, He felt that if he did, he could lose out big. so he was burning the candle from both ends. In a letter to the Warner's president, Lee wrote, My obsession is to make, pardon the expression, the fuckingest action movie picture ever made, which is a rather creative use of the English language. He was certainly doing that, but at what price? You know, never one to be able to sit back and relax. He was constantly burning energy. You know, Linda was telling him to slow down, but he was physiologically incapable of doing so, and the conditions under which they were operating weren't exactly making that easy very hard to jump off the money train when it's running so fast and yet many people began to notice and they remarked that he looked really unhealthy around this time so on may 10th 1973 while he was working in a dubbing room at golden harvest they had to turn off the ac in order to avoid making noise so it was like being in a sauna for hours on end he felt faint his head hurt and at one point he stepped up to go to the bathroom and he just passed out and lost consciousness. He started throwing up, had convulsions, had a fever of 105 Fahrenheit, that's over 40 degrees Celsius, was unresponsive, so they picked him up and rushed him to the hospital. He had, By the time he arrived, he had major difficulties breathing. His brain was swelling, so the doctor gave him a drug to reduce the swelling. He said there was a lot of fluid buildup in the brain and he had been very close to dying. Um, The doc said he may have died from cerebral edema, which is swelling of the brain. He had been lucky that they got him to the hospital in time. So after this close call, he flew back to LA and was examined at the UCLA Medical Center, but they could not find a single cause for what happened. They actually told him, you look great, you're okay, you know. Thanks to the wonders of Western medicine, he was told he had a seizure for no apparent reason, so no idea why he had collapsed and had convulsions. They just knew his brain swelled up, didn't know why, so what's the best course of action? Just go back to do what you were doing before. Clearly terrible advice. You know, it's possible that the heat stroke caused by working under such extreme heat conditions had played a role... On an already worn out body. He exhibited all the symptoms of heat stroke, and also he fit with many of the other risk factors, you know, exhaustion, sleep deprivation, extreme weight loss, dehydration, all of it. In his biography of Bruce Lee, author Matthew Polly argued that a month before the collapse, Lee had the surgery to have the, his sweat glands removed from the armpits because he looked bad on screen since he sweated so much. Um, but this, of course, makes it so that the body has less ability to regulate heat. Bruce's wife Linda, on the other hand, says that this is an urban legend and it's absolutely not true. Now, I wasn't there, so obviously I have no idea. So it looks like that may be, you know, based on what Linda is saying, and it seems like the most trustworthy source of all here, it seems like that may be completely made up, but we'll see. You know, there were so many gossips and rumors surrounding Bruce Lee that sometimes it's really hard to separate fact from fiction. But in any case, despite receiving a clean bill of health from the doctors, people continue to say that he just looked terrible at this time. Somehow he managed to complete Enter the Dragon which, by the way, was made for less than one million dollars and ended up grossing 90 million dollars in 1973 and by now has ended up grossing 350 million dollars. So, I mean, one of the most profitable movies ever made. He clearly became the highest-paid Asian actor in the United States, which is not saying much considering there were hardly any Asian actors in the United States, and in terms of fame, if not money, he was becoming bigger than Steve McQueen. Just like he said he would be in what everyone had thought was a delusional boast at the time. He was a worldwide idol. Warner Brothers at this point wanted to sign Lee to more films. Uh, and Lee only agreed if the film they just shot would be entitled Enter the Dragon. You know, they had originally planned for a different title, but he wanted to emphasize that you know, this was his movie, he was the star of the film. So eventually, after fighting him about it, Warner Brothers agreed, and they offered him a fixed, fairly high salary for the rest of his life if he did five films with them. So that was something on the table to consider. In the meantime, he had lots of fights with Raymond Chow over money. Chow said that most of the money that Lee's movies had made for Golden Harvest would take some time, and you know, he had already given big advances to Lee, Bruce felt that he was cheating him, and again, who knows what the truth is. He also had a big fight with Loewe, the director, and Loewe accused him of pulling a knife on him, which, again, who knows what happened, you know, the director kept taking jabs at him in the press, and clearly Lee was mad about it, unlikely that he pulled a knife based on most other people's testimony, but regardless, there had been some drama there. So all of this stuff was going on. In the meantime, Silliphant told him that 20th Century Fox had okayed making the movie The Silent Flute. But earlier they had not wanted it, but of course now that Bruce Lee was huge, they wanted it because he was a god. But Lee said no. You know, He was bitter over Coburn giving up when Lee badly needed him. And he also he wasn't lying when he said that things had changed and now they could no longer afford him. So at Linda's request, he agreed to move the family back to Los Angeles and split his time between Los Angeles and Hong Kong. Linda said, Bruce made two contradictory statements in the last months of his life. He said, There is no limit, no end in sight to how far I can ascend in my knowledge of film and the martial arts. While at the same time, he told me, I don't know how much longer I can keep this up and based on conversations of Linda, he made it clear that he sort of expected to die young. Which brings us to July 20th, 1973. Bruce Lee went to the apartment of actress Betty Ting. I mentioned earlier how gossip magazines argued that Betty Ting was his girlfriend and she certainly did nothing to the night. However, the story told is that I... She was looking for a part in one of his movies, he did not give it to her, so she got mad. Supposedly, according to her version, he had broken up with her and she attempted suicide, or at least that's if you listen to the gossip magazines now. I'm not into national enquirer type of reporting, so I'm not overly interested in debating whether this was true or not, particularly in light of the very limited evidence available. The point remains, he was at her apartment and develop a massive headache he took some medication that Betty gave him and lay down he went to sleep and he would never wake up again she went to the room and tried to wake him up and couldn't now rather than doing the obvious which is immediately calling an ambulance which would have been the appropriate response she called Raymond Chow instead and he took over half an hour to get out there Lee was still unresponsive, and somehow, despite Bruce Lee's close call a couple of months earlier, they still decided it wasn't time to call an ambulance. They called Betty's doctor instead. Only afterwards, they finally called an ambulance. But by the time he reached the hospital, he was dead. The diagnosis is that he died of acute cerebral edema, which again brain swelling it means, which, yeah, okay, we know that that happened, but the debate is in what caused the brain swelling. Culturally, Hong Kong at the time was super anti-cannabis, so the fact that some cannabis was found in Lee's system drove the tabloids wild with made-up tales of drug addiction. The newspapers uh, argued that Lee had died of an overdose of pretty much every drug known to man, uh, there were tales of he was killed by Japanese ninjas, angry Chinese traditionalists using dim the death touch. Uh, the press also argued Betty Ting uh, killed him and there were demonstrations in several nations basically asking for her head on a pike. Some of the other rumors argued that maybe Raymond Chow had killed him or maybe it was a runner show. You know, he was madness in the papers. So authorities in Hong Kong organized a court of inquiry with a judge and three jurors designed to decide whether the death was a suicide, a homicide, or an accident. Authorities needed an explanation to calm down the high degree of instability in the streets triggered by his death. The lawyer for the insurance, of course, wanted to argue that it was due to drugs so that they would not have to pay Linda for the life insurance. Or at least proved that Lee had lied on the application when he stated no to ever having used illegal drugs. Chow argued that maybe he had received brain damage from being hit on the set. But you know, when they did the chemical analysis, they saw that the only chemicals in his body was a pill of you know, some kind of a painkiller, and an extremely small amount of cannabis. Theoretically, neither should have caused any damage. No poison, no other drug. One of the Hong Kong doctors argued that cannabis killed him, but pretty much everyone else said there had been no deaths from massive amounts of cannabis, let alone some like the trace amounts that were found in Lee's body it wouldn't do anything to anybody. So some suggested an allergic reaction to the painkiller. The Chinese doctor who argued that cannabis was the culprit was dismantled on the witness stand and his credibility pretty much broken. It was obvious that he didn't know what he was talking about. The jury ended up deciding that that was an accident, likely a reaction to the drug. Chuck Norris had a similar take on this. You know, He argued that the cortisone shots that Lee was taking for his back pain and this medication he had taken for a headache had reacted poorly with one another and caused the swelling of the brain. Author Matthew Polley, who wrote this recent biography of Bruce Lee, argued that the allergic reaction is unlikely since usually there are many other symptoms for an allergic reaction and Lee displayed none of them, so he tended to support the heat stroke theory. Um, Which, I mean, you can see some logic there, right? You know, he was uh, always sensitive to it, he was exhausted after working nonstop, working in insanely hot rooms, constantly working out. So it's possible, definitely not proven. And definitely not what the inquiry on Bruce Lee's death concluded. And not also what Bruce Lee's own family thought happened. You know, Linda agreed with the reaction to medication theory. She said, I listened to the fanciful theories and there the speculations grow. The more closely one analyzed these ideas, the more absurd they seem. They range from suggestions that Ran Ran Shaw had Bruce murdered to suggestion that Raymond Chow organized it. The truth was that the people of Hong Kong had lost a great hero and were reluctant to accept the reality that their superhero could succumb as easily as any other mortal. But ultimately, you know, to her... The cause almost didn't matter, and she felt that all the speculating about his death was pointless. As she put it, it doesn't matter, he's gone. Five days later, there was a funeral for him, with 30,000 people attending, the biggest funeral in Hong Kong history. Afterwards, Linda brought the body back to Seattle and buried him there. She said that the happiest times they have had were in Seattle, and so they had a second funeral there. Uh, Steve McQueen was there despite the fact that he had a reputation for avoiding funerals like the plague. And he said I care for Bruce. Uh, I felt like saying goodbye to a friend. There's a gravestone there where you see an open book with uh, written there uh, founder of Jet Condo. And there's also on the left there's a Daoist yang symbol and on the right the words uh, your inspirations continues to guide us toward our personal liberation incidentally somebody sent me a photo recently uh, they visited the gravestone and uh, they left a copy of my book on the warrior's path on top of it I thought that was a sweet cool thing uh, they sent me the picture and all at the funeral uh, actor James Coburn said Farewell, brother. It has been an honor to share this space in time with you. As a friend and as a teacher, you have given to me, have brought my physical, spiritual, and psychological selves together. Thank you. May peace be with you. In 1972, Lee had told the reporter, even though I, Bruce Lee, may die someday without fulfilling all of my ambitions, I feel no sorrow. I did what I wanted to do. What I've done, I've done with sincerity and to the best of my ability. You can't expect much more from life. So by the time he died, Bruce was 32 years old, which makes the impact he had in the little time he lived even more mind-boggling. You know, He could have been a rock star or a religious leader or anything else. Martial arts were just a channel for this amazing energy he had. Had he put that same energy anywhere else, he would have probably had similar success. Once he had written down, I feel I have this great creative and spiritual force within me that is greater than fate, greater than ambition, greater than confidence, greater than determination, greater than vision. It's all of these combined. Time magazine named him as one of the most important people of the 20th century and and for good reason. His impact on the lives of millions is hard to measure. He didn't just make four movies offering a few hours of combined entertainment. At the most basic level, he forever changed action movies and martial arts cinema. Uh, It's no exaggeration to say also that because of him millions of people took up martial arts training. Martial arts went from a small niche thing to a huge worldwide phenomenon. Also consider more modern things that happen after his death. You know, think about the entire phenomenon of MMA, mixed martial art, and the UFC. You know, UFC President Dana White referred to Bruce Lee as the godfather of mixed martial arts. Now, not literally, because he actually wasn't fond of martial arts for sport. But definitely the approach he favor of taking the best from different systems is exactly what MMA is like. You know, by proving that all different styles had strengths and weaknesses, and only by combining them you could become more effective. MMA has vindicated Bruce Lee's theories decades after he put them in words. Through his work, Bruce Lee also single-handedly changed the way in which Asian people were perceived. You know, the Hollywood image of Asians up until this point has been nothing but negative stereotypes. You know, they were weak, they were subservient, they were the stuff that you would throw in a movie for a cheap laugh. No one laughed at Bruce Lee. You know, he was a physical specimen and clearly a badass. Nearly everyone, including people who harbored serious racial prejudice, wanted to be like him. He became the prototype of masculinity. so with his very presence and popularity he crushed previous stereotypes about Asian people held by some in US and other countries and in the process made life much, much easier for millions of Asian immigrants in the West. As Danny Nosanto's daughter Diana phrased rather in a funny way in the documentary Ambrose Lee, she said, he put balls on Chinese men at least in metaphorically and in popular imagination, so to speak. Karim Abdul-Jabbar stated Bruce had to deal with racism in the acting profession. He had to deal with the fact that most of the people in the studios thought that most Americans would not accept a Chinese person as a hero. And Bruce lost opportunities to act here in America because he was not white. He went to Hong Kong and partnered with Raymond Chow and made incredible movies that were blockbusters. So he beat the system and then came back and made Enter the Dragon and again wowed everybody. The director of Enter the Dragon stated, Bruce did more for the Chinese psyche than any dozen politicians and martyrs. This acted as gut-level therapy for millions of overworked and underprivileged people. Bruce rekindled a feeling of pride and literally brought his countrymen to their feet, screaming and cheering in hundreds of theaters. They suddenly felt better about themselves and could take another day with a little less pain and prejudice. So these, of course, appealed to Asian people, but also appealed to non-white people as a whole. You know, here was a non-white hero, which was not common at all. And in some kind of strange, magical way, he also appealed to white folks in the West. Basically everyone liked him, even though he may have been for very different reasons. You know, most people found themselves enriched by interacting with him. He had that kind of a magnetic personality. And even those who didn't interact with him personally got a taste of it through his on-screen performances. Uh, never mind that those who bother to go a little deeper they found a treasure in his ideas and philosophy of life but to wrap things up there's one story above all that to me captured Bruce Lee's impact and it's particularly meaningful today when you hear constantly about controversies over removing statues and all of that kind of stuff it is how the story goes in the city of Mostert in the former Yugoslavia. It had been a theater of factional bloodshed during the 1990s Yugoslavian civil war. Um, of course I'm not gonna get into the Yugoslavian civil war because that's a whole other rabbit hole but basically tremendous bloodshed and religious-ethnic conflict between Croats, Serbs, Bosnians, you name it. What all of them needed was a symbol of unity, something that would bring them back together to inspire peace and create some kind of common bridge. The problem was that pretty much every hero to one side was hated by everyone else. Uh, you know, statues and symbols are rather delicate things, as we see with the controversy today over statue removals. Very rarely somebody's liked by everybody. So all these different factions who had been at each other's throat throughout the Civil War, they could not agree. They simply could not agree because nobody was universally liked by all of them and, you know, just couldn't come to any agreement until someone mentioned, hey guys, what about Bruce Lee? And suddenly no one had anything bad to say. No matter the ethnicity, no matter the religion, no matter where they had stood in the Yugoslavian Civil War, no matter anything that separated people, the fact was everyone loved Bruce Lee.